This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to read other articles. He Shall Have Dominion by Kenneth L. Gentry Jr. Copyright 1992 Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Preface It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. So began Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. And such is an appropriate introduction to the present work, for this study in eschatology is also a tale of two cities, the city of God and the city of man. And we today may declare that in many respects it is the best of times, while in other respects it is the worst of times. As I write this book, modern man is witnessing remarkable world events. It has not been too many months since the Berlin Wall dividing the two Germanies fell, 1989. Eastern Europe freed itself from Soviet communist domination, 1990. And East and West Germany reunited, 1991. The Beirut hostage crisis has finally come to an end after many years of frustration, 1991. Within the past few weeks of my writing these words, the Soviet Union has officially vanished having broken into 12 independent democratic republics, 1992. In addition, there are remarkable revivals of Christianity in various third world countries, as well as in the former Soviet Union. Such would suggest the best of times. Five years ago, who would have thought that these world-shaking events would occur? The bleak shadow that the Soviet bear cast over the earth has vanished with the dawn of a new day. In many respects, These events signal the best of times for those long afflicted by communism and the rest of us who were threatened with nuclear destruction by its existence. These also are the worst of times. The Chinese communists are still brutally repressing free speech. Not long ago, Iraq Saddam Hussein started and lost a cruel and potentially disastrous war, but he still remains in power. 1992 There is fear that the turbulent Middle East will buy up the brains and weaponry of the former Soviet Union. Abortion still ranks as one of America's leading surgical procedures and is widely practiced throughout the world. The AIDS epidemic shows no signs of abating, but rather of increasing. The same is true of the nearly incurable strain of tuberculosis that now accompanies AIDS. The federal government's debt is enormous and growing rapidly. Though there are bright historical and social rays of hope, these are often too eclipsed by the clouds of political gloom and the smoke of cultural upheaval. One day the world events listed above will be understood in the terms of the all-controlling plan of God. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. For right now we can only surmise what God might be doing and what the end result will be. But I have not written this work as a prophetic commentary on the times. I am not interested in paper exegesis. Christianity has been embarrassed by too many failed prophets in this century. Yet I believe there is a system of biblical eschatology that has in the past and will yet again demonstrate itself as a valid force in the development of world events. And that eschatology is post-millennialism. For the last 50 years, many Christians wrongly deemed postmillennialism as a theological dead issue. It held too optimistic a prospect for the future for those who lived in an era that witnessed the rise of communism and two world wars. But, post- but postmillennialism has begun to make headway once again, 
as a theologically credible alternative to the more popular eschatologies of despair. And it is important to realize that in its remarkable resurgence anodates the collapse of Soviet and Eastern Bloc communism. These events cannot be laid down as a psychological basis for the modern resurgence of postmillennial optimism. The market for works on eschatology is ripe. Many of the best-selling Christian works in the last few years have dealt with prophecy. In this work, I hope to set forth compelling reasons for a return to postmillennialism by evangelical Christians. These reasons will be shown to be preeminently exegetical and theological. For the Christian, exegesis and theology should provide the basis for expectation for the future, not current events. I would like to thank several friends for assisting me in the proofreading of the chapters. Tim Martin, Bill Bonney, Edmund Sandlin, and Kim Connor. Their friendship, assistance, advice, and encouragement are much appreciated. They are Christians who persuaded that he shall have dominion. Thanks also to my son Stephen for spending several days helping me document check direct quotations for accuracy. Part 1. Introduction. Chapter 1. The Significance of Eschatology. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10. The English term eschatology is a fairly late theological term, apparently not used before the 19th century. Eschatology is derived from the compounding of two Greek terms, eschatos, which means last, and logia, which means word, discourse. Etymologically, then, eschatology is the study of the last things. The term is derived from certain scriptural passages that speak of the last days, 2 Timothy 3.1, Hebrews 1.2, the last time, 1 Peter 1.20 and Jude 18, the last hour, 1 John 2.18, and other comparable statements. We find similar examples in the Septuagint, the 2nd century B.C. Greek translation of the Old Testament. Eschatology is generally divided into two categories. There is that branch, which we call cosmic eschatology, which deals with the consummational history of the world system and the human race. Cosmic eschatology involves the study of the biblical data regarding the providentially governed flow of history as it develops towards its foreordained consummation. Cosmic eschatology especially focuses on the developmental unfolding of the kingdom of God in history, the second advent of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, and the eternal state. Then there is what we may call personal eschatology, which is concerned with the destiny of the individual at death. This necessarily involves a study of physical death, the immortality of the soul, and the intermediate state. Of course, because it ushers the individual out of the temporal and into the eternal world, it also involves a consideration of heaven and hell. The present treatise will focus on cosmic eschatology. Eschatology is vitally important to a proper understanding of the biblical revelation. As Gerhardus Voss has noted regarding Paul's theology, not only Christology but also soteriology of the apostles' teaching is closely interwoven with eschatology, that were the question put, which of the strands is more central, which more peripheral, the eschatology would have as good a claim to the central place as the others. In reality, however, there is no alternative here. Here is backward and forward movement in order of the thought in both directions. Although eschatological matters have always been 
before the church, it is widely recognized that eschatology has only rel- relatively recently come, to, come into prominence as an area of systematic inquiry. Burkhoff notes in this regard, When Clyforth wrote his eschatology, he complained about the fact that there has never yet appeared a comprehensive and adequate treatise on eschatology as a whole. In general, it may be said that eschatology is even now, 1941, the least developed of all logic of dogmatics. This concern has come very late in church history. Though this deficiency has been somewhat alleviated of late, it is unfortunately the present situation that the field of eschatology is largely dominated by writers offering either rationalistic assessments, Rudolf Bultmann, Jürgen Moltmann, Wolfhart Pannenberg, dispensationalistic novelties, Charles C. Ryrie, John F. Walward, J. Dwight Pentecost, sensualistic prognosticians, Hall Lindsay and Dave Hunt. Of course, there are, there are exceptions, Anthony Hokema and George Eldon Ladd. Nevertheless, a careful and systematic presentation of the optimistic eschatology of Scripture remains a genuine need within the Church. I hope that this work will per- partially meet that need. There are those who lament the introduction of new ideas or the resystemization of older ideas in the theological marketplace of eschatology. One theologian writes that we do not need another defense in a particular view of the future, and certainly not a new view. Another comments in review of a new work on eschatology that he sincerely questions the necessity of adding a fifth position to an already overcrowded rapture debate. Yet, it is vitally important that continued inquiry systemization, and correction be made in our understanding of this present field of theology. Let me present three justifications for a new work on eschatology. The priority of scripture. Paul informs us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Consequently, the study of any scripture's doctrines will be beneficial to the Christian and eschatology is certainly one of the major fields of biblical theology. Scripture, not experience, must be the foundation of our eschatology. As I will demonstrate in more detail later, the matter of biblical eschatology begins at the very genesis of universal history and extends to its ultimate consummation. Thus, its sweep encompasses the whole of time and entirety of biblical record. As Jurgen Moltmann puts it, from first to last, and not merely in the epilogue, Christianity is eschatology, is hope, forward-looking and forward-moving, and therefore also revolutionizing and transforming the present. J.J. Van Ostervee agrees, All true theology is at the same time teleology, which must itself lead to eschatology. Or to put the matter statistically in this economic age, some research suggests that the prophetic element in scripture accounts for more than one-fourth, or about 27%, of the biblical record because predictive prophecy is found in 8,352 of the Bible's 31,124 verses. Burkhoff puts the significance of eschatology in proper perspective regarding its relation to other branches of systematic or dogmatic theology. In theology, it is the question how God is finally perfectly glorified in the work of his hands, and how the counsel of God is fully realized. In anthropology, the question how the disrupting influence of sin is completely overcome, In Christology, the question of how the work of Christ is crowned in perfect victory. In Soteriology, the question how the work of the Holy Spirit at last issues the complete redemption and glorification of the people of God. And Ecclesiology, 
the question, the final apothesis of the church. All these questions must find their answer in the last locus of dogmatics, making it the real capstone of dogmatic theology. MacDonald boldly asserts of Jesus' teaching, It is much more than a mere paradox to say that the first things in the Gospels is their presentation of the last things. Their theology, like any sound theology which is true to its biblical perspective, involves an eschatology, a doctrine of end events. For the evangelical Christian, the scripture holds a dominant sway over his worldview. With such a heavy biblical emphasis on matters of eschatological significance, we should not overlook this field of study. In fact, this matter leads us to our next related concern, the philosophy of history. The Christian philosophy of history. Does history have any meaning, purpose, or significance? Is there a unified movement in history? Is history going anywhere? These are important questions for us as we begin a study of biblical eschatology. The first to prepare us for, and the last one speaks of cosmic eschatology. After all, the issue of eschatology is not just one of how to interpret Revelation 20, but one that bears on the entire philosophy of history. Carl Henry observes that the Judeo-Christian revelation has nurtured a universal conviction that no theology of philosophy can be comprehensive unless it deals with the direction of history and the goal of the universe, with the matter of man's ultimate destiny and the problem of death. Voss notes, It is no wonder that such an energetic eschatological thinking tended towards consolidation in an orb of compact theological structure. For in it, the world process is viewed as a unit. The end is placed in the light of the beginning, and all intermediate developments are construed with reference to the purpose a quo and the terminus ad quem. Eschatology, in other words, even that of the most primitive kind, yields ipso facto a philosophy of history, be it of the most rudimentary sort. And every philosophy of a history bears in itself that seed of a theology. All eschatological interpretation of history, when united to a strong religious mentality, cannot but produce the finest practical theological fruitage. To take God as source and end of all that exists and happens, and to hold such a view suffused with the warmth of genuine devotion, stands not only related to theology as the fruit stands to the tree, but it is by reason of its essence a veritable theological tree of life. Although we will not flesh out a full philosophy of history, we do need to be at least generally aware of its significance. Basically, three approaches to history are significant to our inquiry, as presented by Reinhold Niebuhr and Arthur F. Holmes. These views are the pagan cyclical view, the Christian linear view, and the secular evolutionary view. A brief historical sketch. The study of history is a complicated task. The difficulty of arranging all the evidence we have, which gives us by a but a fraction of all that occurred, is truly imposing. Tolstoy is reported to have commented that history would be an excellent thing if only it were true. In the late 1600s, systematic historical priorism arose, which discounted the value of history due to the philosophical skepticism regarding all human knowledge. Developing an explicitly biblical philosophy of history is a task of great significance for Christians. Although societies have existed and continue to exist where there is little awareness of the ongoing historical process, there eventually arose in the ancient pre-Christian world a cyclical view of history. The cyclical interpretation of history held, and in some cases still holds, a strong influence in the East, China, India, and Persia. This cyclical view of history 
influenced the West through Greece and Rome. Based on the seasonal rhythm of nature, it presented history as an endless, recurring series of cycles. Given the pagan conception of recurring cycles and the unconnectedness of reality under competing gods, there could be no unified conception of reality. Such a view destroyed any hope of historical progress, thereby trapping man in a dead-end universe of relentless political cycles. In Greece, there was a rigorously anti-historical metaphysics, as a result of the influence of Aristotle's concern with the with the eternal. Aristotle wrote. For indeed, time itself seems to be a sort of circle. Physics four fourteen. The Roman historian Cornelius Tacticus, A.D. fifty six through one hundred and seventeen, wrote that not only the seasons but everything else, social theory included, moves in cycles. Annals three fifty five. Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, A.D. one hundred twenty one through one eighty, the Stoic philosopher and Roman emperor. Clearly expressed the cyclical view. Future generations will have nothing new to witness, even as our forefathers beheld nothing more than we of today. But that if a man comes to his fortieth year and has any understanding at all, he has virtually seen, thanks to their similarity, all possible happenings, both past and to come. Meditations eleven one. The philosophically and ethically self-conscious Christian has a wholly different conception of reality. This realistic conception of history gives rise to a distinctive and meaningful philosophy of history. Aurelius Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, A.D. three hundred and fifty-four to four hundred and thirty, may rightly be called the father of the philosophy of history. He sets forth a philosophy of history that had its meaning rooted in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, which is an important aspect of the eternal plan of the Almighty God, Creator of heaven and earth. Eventually, the calendar of the West was dated Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. This was first done by Don Dionysius Exegus in 525. It was not until the 18th century that the,、uh, that the preceding era was designated B.C. before Christ. Coleman observes, "Our system of time does not number the years in a continuous forward-moving series that begins at a fixed initial point. Our history does not proceed from an initial point, but from a center." This event is the birth of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Augustine argued that what gave meaning to history was the providential intervention of God. In addition, since according to Augustine, human history is but the unfolding of the divine drama, history has direction. He saw that history is moving to a glorious conclusion. Hence, he viewed history as linear rather than rather than cyclical. The three basic elements of a Christian view of history are these. One linear movement, two divine intrusion, and three theological orientation. The Christian Augustinian view of universal history reigned with great influence throughout the medieval period. It was largely displaced by a secular philosophy of history influenced by the Renaissance concern with classical antiquity. For a brief time in in 1792, the leaders of the French Revolution attempted to impose a new calendar in France. In fact, the very designations—Middle Ages, Medieval Period, Dark Ages, and so forth—evidence a bias against the Christian influence on history. The period of the dominant influence of Christianity in the Middle Ages is considered to be a dark period, separating the golden days of pagan Greece and Rome from its glorious modern heirs in secular humanism. Notice the dim view that the Marcus de Condorcet had of the Middle Ages. 
Man's only achievements were theological daydreaming and superstitious imposture. His only morality, religious intolerance. But the ancient pagan and modern secular views of history are not glorious at all. Christian historian C. Greg Singer relates an experience he had at an annual meeting of the American Historical Association in the early 1970s. He was at an informal small group meeting with several leading historians. The subject under discussion was the meaning and purpose of history. The six other historians presented were convinced that history lacked any decisive meaning and any discernible purpose. Singer responded, if this be the case, then why do we teach history? His query was met with surprise and disgust. The group broke up and all the historians went to their various discussion seminars on the subject they teach in colleges, but which, by their own estimation, had no inherent meaning. According to the various competing modern, secular, evolutionary views, history can really have no meaning, purpose, value, or direction. The floor of reality is chance. In such a system, the ultimate foundation of the rational, therefore, becomes the irrational. Thus, not only is there no ultimate meaning and purpose, but no foundation for ethics, i.e. for moral values. The the chaos of modern culture is the fruit of the widespread permeation of this modern philosophy of history. Presuppositions of the Christian Philosophy of History The presuppositions undergirding the Christian philosophy of linear history include the following several elements, which will only be briefly stated. It is important that we bear these in mind from the outset. Eschatological inquiry will be radically altered and thrown into hopeless confusion if these presuppositions to our study are not properly understood as givens. These will be brought to bear in our treatment of the biblical eschatological system set forth in the present work. The fundamental presuppositions of the Christian philosophy of history, which are discovered in both Testaments, are God, creation, providence, fall, redemption, revelation, and consummation. God. God exists and is absolutely independent and wholly self-sufficient. In Exodus 3.14, he defines himself via his special covenantal name, Yahweh, Jehovah. Here he identifies himself as I am that I am. This self-designation is peculiarly important to our understanding of God. This statement is found in the imperfect tense in Hebrew, therefore in distinguishing a constantly manifested quality. From his name we may discern certain of God's intrinsic qualities. One, his aseity. God exists of himself. He is wholly uncreated and self-existent. There is no principle or fact back of God accounting for his existence. John 5.26 2. His eternity. He is of unlimited eternal duration. The combination of the verb tense imperfect and its repetition I am, I am emphasize his uninterrupted continuous existence. Psalm 93.1-2 Isaiah 40.28 and Isaiah 57.15 His sovereignty. He is absolutely self-determinative. He determines from within his own being. As the absolute one, he operates with unfettered liberty. He is not conditioned by outward circumstance. He is what he is because he is what he is. He is completely self-deficient and has no need of anything outside of himself. Isaiah 49-31 Creation There is a personal, moral, sovereign origin of all reality. 
the Christian's creational viewpoint puts man under God and over nature. Genesis 1, 26-27 and Psalm 8. It imparts transcendent meaning to temporal history and sets before man a high calling. The entire universe from the smallest atomic particle to the largest and farthest flung galaxy was created ex nihilo. It exists solely because of the existence of God's creative will and was brought into being by his sovereign, successive, definitive fiats. Genesis 1-1, Exodus 20-11, Hebrews 11-3. All facts and laws, all people and materials trace their origin, meaning, and purpose back to God. Providence. God has eternally decreed, minutely detailed, sovereignly determined, and unfailingly certain plan for the universe. This plan is personally and intimately administered by him and for his own glory. Providence imparts transcendent meaning into into the control of history. God works all things after the counsel of his holy will. Ephesians 1, 11, Psalm 33, 1, Isaiah 45, 10 through 11. Providence is the alternative to the chance and brute factuality, i.e. the unrelatedness of reality, of the non-Christian viewpoint. Fall. Because of God's testing of Adam, which resulted in Adam's fall, Genesis 3, 1 through 8, history has become the battleground of Christ and Antichrist. Genesis 3, 15. Sin affects every aspect of human endeavor, distorting all of reality. Our historical situation cannot be understood apart from the unnaturalness of sin. Neither may we think of man's fundamental problem as ontological, related to his finite being. Adam's pre-fall abilities were remarkable. Genesis 2.15, 19-20 As will be our post-temporal existence. 1 Corinthians 15.42-53 Man's fundamental problem is an ethical one, related to his rebellion against the law of God. Romans 5.10 Chapter 8, 7 through 8. Because of, because of this, he labors under God's curse. Genesis 3, 15. Romans 5, 12 through 9. Galatians 3, 10. But history is not abandoned by God due to man's fall. It does, however, witness the rise of a new factor. Redemption. Redemption. The major motif of history is the redemptive activity of God in reconciling creation back to himself. Genesis 3, 15. Colossians 1, 19 through 23. This will very strongly and directly affect our understanding of biblical eschatology. God has established the plan of redemption in order to bring wayward man back to himself. No proper understanding of historical progress and direction can be held with reference only to the fall of man. We must take into account also the restorative acts of God in redemption. The division of history into B.C. and A.D. is indicative of the realization of Christ as the focal point of the historical process. Such an historical designation has theological implications. That some scholars opt for BCE and CE, dating is a sign of an anti-Christian bias. Revelation. God has revealed himself and various aspects of his will infallibly and inerrantly in his holy word, the Bible. John 10, 35, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. The providential governance of history employs the causative prophetic word of the Creator. God's eternal decree from which his prophetic word springs into history is neither abstract nor random. It is concrete and rational. It is not raw force but structured power, 
God's word gives intelligible construction to all things. Psalm 33, 11, 148, 5, Hebrew 1, 3, 11, and 3. Consummation. Not only does history have a beginning, but it is providentially being guided to a particular end. Isaiah 46, 10, 55, 11. Our labor in the Lord here on earth is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. We labor in the present with a view to the future, and ultimately to the consummation and the eternal state. In fact, it must be realized that it was the Christian view of history that gave Western civilization its remarkably widespread conviction that the future offers hope. At this juncture, I cannot, I can afford to devote no more space to this important matter of the philosophy of history. But readers should keep these general statements in mind as they read the study of biblical eschatology. We are dealing with a very important matter, the Christian philosophy of universal history. We must recognize that scripture affirms that all history has a purpose and goal, that history is unrepeatable, and that it moves toward the final triumph of the good. To read much of popular eschatological literature, one would surmise that the Bible is an eschatological jigsaw puzzle, a grand trivial pursuit. Such is not the case. It means everything to eschatological inquiry, whether or not the entire course of world history is under the absolutely sovereign administration of the infinitely personal God of Scripture. It is of fundamental consequence whether or not we view the universe as the creature of God designed for his glory. If God were not absolutely sovereign, some competing God or some countervailing principle of some unforeseen fortuity could throw a dark blanket of obscurity over our knowledge of the ultimate eschatological outcome of universal history and human existence. This would undermine any hope for a moral conclusion to world and universal history. It is of extreme importance regarding the facts of eschatological eventuation that we understand this. God has an eternal plan that absolutely governs the origin, process, and outcome of history. A Christian philosophy of history must insist that his will is determinative rather than responsive. God is not merely responding to forces inherent within the process of history, whether resultant from a competing spiritual being or beings, or in the consequence of autonomous man act- human activity, or due to natural phenomena. It matters immensely whether or not God has graciously and objectively revealed himself and his will to man. If neither of these biblical givens is true, then as regards the former, God himself cannot certainly know the future because it would be definitionally random and unknowable. Regarding that the latter, we could have no hope ourselves of lifting the veil of the future. Our inquiry would be pure guesswork. The Cultural Implications of Eschatology As will become evident in the following chapters, eschatology has a tremendous effect on the Christian's worldview and consequently on his practical daily living. In this book, I will especially highlight one particular eschatological theme that is quite dominate in the entire prophetic scriptures, and that is most influential in promoting a full-orbed Christian witness and Bible-based social activism, the gospel victory theme. The omission of the gospel victory theme in much of modern eschatology should be lamented. Its replacement with a defeatist scheme for Christian enterprise has paralyzed the Christian cultural enterprise emptied the Christian worldview of practical significance and given Christians a sinful comfort in lethargy because it tends to justify social irresponsibility. It has left the earth 
which is the Lord's, Psalm 24-1, to a conquered foe and the enemy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This paralysis is all the more lamentable because it has caused the forfeiture of great gains made by these tireless and costly labors of our Christian forefathers, particularly from the Reformation era through the early 1900s. Eschatological Pessimism Three of the four major evangelical eschatological systems may be characterized as pessimistic, whereas the view to be set forth in the present work may be seen as optimistic. In categorizing them as pessimistic, I am speaking of the following issues. 1. As systems of gospel proclamation, each teaches the gospel of Christ will not exercise any major influence in the world before Christ's return. 2. As systems of as systems of historical understanding, each holds that the Bible teaches there are prophetically determined, irresistible trends downward through, toward chaos in the outworking and development of history, and therefore, three, as systems for the promotion of Christian discipleship, each dissuades the church from anticipating and laboring for wide-scale success in influencing the world for Christ during this age. The pessimism-optimism question has very much to do with the practical endeavors of Christians in the world today. All evangelical Christians are optimistic in the ultimate sense that God will miraculously win the war against sin and Satan at the end of history by direct supernatural intervention, either in an earthly millennial kingdom introduced by Jesus at the second coming or at the final judgment, which introduces the new heavens and the new earth. Dispensationalism The dispensationalist urges believers to accept the view that the church age will end in apostasy, not revival because it is so destined, although they really say predestined, by God. Furthermore, believers today are taught by this view that this current world is headed towards judgment. After that judgment, Christ will take control of the world and rule it. But until this, that happens, the message and activities for believers should be flee the wrath to come by finding safety in Jesus Christ. We are, witness, we are witnessing in this 20th century the collapse of civilization. It is obvious that we are advancing toward the end of the age, I can see no bright prospects through the efforts of man for the earth and its inhabitants. As this book was going to press, another sample of pessimism crossed my desk. This present world is rapidly coming to an end. It is an irreversible collusion course with destiny. This is the language of predestination. Because of this, dispensationalists dogmatically teach their followers, Christians have no immediate solution to the problems of our day. In fact, they aver that to attempt to establish a long-term change of institutions before Christ returns will only result in the leaven of humanism permeating Orthodox Christianity, and that our main business should be to rescue people out of the mess and not try to improve it or preserve its good characteristics. Dispensationalists are prone to lament, Without the hope of our Lord's return, what future do any of us have? I am not taking these statements out of context. They are quite conventional. The language of social and political dis disengagement is basic to the dispensational outlook. Hall Lindsay states the situation about as strongly as can be. Christ died for us in order to rescue us from this present evil age. These verses show us what our focus, motivation, and hope should be in this present age. We are to live with the constant expectation of the any moment appearing of the, our Lord to this earth. In fact, he writes, The world will progressively harden its heart against the gospel and plunge itself into destruction. He, his call to Christians is, We should be living like persons who don't expect to be around much longer. As R.A. Torrey put it, 
The darker the night gets, the lighter my heart gets. Christianity has no future in this view for we are in the time of the end. Dispensationalists have no practical long-range hope for the Christian in the here and now. It would appear that the great judge is poised on the threshold of a new age just ready to usher in the next major movement in his plan for the world. James 5.9 Every saint should be standing in the on tiptoe in anticipation. Charles C. Ryrie denies any optimistic gospel victory when he teaches that defection and apostasy, among other things, will characterize the entire period of church history. Dave Hunt argues that only a small percentage of mankind is willing to come to Christ in repentance and be born again by the Spirit of God, and that the vast majority of people will continue to reject Christ in the future just as they have in the past. The dispensationalist is alarmed at the thought of Christian cultural transformation. In his view, to attempt such is to err so grievously as to lead one into a program that is hopeless. It calls necessarily for the adopting of means that are unauthorized and the setting of a goal that is unattainable, as it is unscriptural. Herein lies the great mistake of the kingdom builders, their tribe decrees, who have their goal as a vision of Christianizing the world. Historic Premillennialism Historic premillennialists would join in the denial of the gospel victory theme. J. Barton Payne believes that the evil is present in our world as predicted in the holy books of the Bible. This evil must occur because it is forecast of Christ's imminent return. Hobart H. Mounts laments that it is difficult to see from history alone any cause for optimism. He is certain that it will be a persecuted church that will witness the victorious return of Christ, rather than a world-conquering church. George Eldon Ladd concurs. In spite of the fact that God has invaded history in Christ, and in spite of the fact that it will be the mission of Jesus' disciples to evangelize the entire world, the world will remain an evil place. False Christs would arise who will lead many astray. Wars, strife, and persecution would continue. Wickedness would abound so as, as to chill the love of many. Wickedness would abound so as to chill the love of many. Amillennialism. Among amillennialists, we discover the same sort of despair. William Hendrickson comments that the vast majority will ever be on the side of the evil one. Cornelius Vanderwall writes that, I do not believe in inevitable progress towards a much better world in this dispensation, and God's church has no right to take an optimistic, triumphalistic attitude. H.G. Jongst and J.M. Van Krimpen are forthright in their declaration that there is no room for optimism. Towards the end, in the camps of the Satanic and the Antichrist, culture will sicken and the church will yearn to be delivered from its distress. Van Reason writes that Babylon will be the city of the end. Amillennialist Donald Guthrie, according to, to the dispensationalist John F. Walvoord, readily agrees that the biblical point of view is pessimistic. That is, the world as it is now constituted will not be revived and improved, but instead will be destroyed and replaced. Hendricks Burkhoff knows the effect of such thinking on the average Christian. The average Christian does not expect to see any positive signs of Christ's return in the world. He believes that the world will only become worse and the ra- and races in the direction of the Antichrist. Dale H. Kuiper blasts post because they are fiercely opposed to the speaking of a parallel development of good and evil, 
of God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom, of the world becoming progressively worse and falling away, of the church's tribulation and increasing, and the end of the world finding the church lonely and sorely beset. Henko insists that we must indeed expect an age when the powers of darkness are rule in the earth. Consequently, there is nothing optimistic here or filled with the hope for the future. An entire issue of the standard-bearer of the amillennial Protestant Reformed Church is dogmatic in his despair. The hope of the Reformed Christian is not in any kingdom in this sorry world. Why, after all, would he want to place it here? For what is the Taj Mahal even compared to the mansion prepared for him in heaven? Another decade has ended. We are a step closer to the end. We do well to meditate on that. In all his or her sorrows and persecutions, the child of God living in January Anno, Anno Domini 1990 longs for one thing, and only one thing, the coming of Christ to judge the living and the dead, by which he and all Christ's chosen ones shall be translated to Christ. All other hopes are miserable delusions and pipe dreams. The woe continues. The world is filled with sin and getting worse. A hopeless situation beyond repair and impossible to salvage is before us. Thus, the postmillennial hope of the growth of the true Christian faith to dominance holds before us an illusionary hope. It is a mirage, therefore, a false hope. It is a mirage because the kingdom which the postmillennialists describe is, in fact, the kingdom of Antichrist. The hope of the believer, and for this I am profoundly grateful, is not on any kingdom in this sorry world, but is fastened with eagerness, with longing, and with great optimism on the everlasting kingdom of righteousness, which shall be realized only in the new heavens and in the new earth, where sin shall be no more. Because of God's curse, man lies in the midst of death with no escape. Man goes in a circle, a vicious circle. He has made progress, but his progress consists only in that he runs his miserable circle at a faster pace. The best of man's earthly life is labor and sorrow. Psalm 90.10 Nothing is free from becoming dust. Apostasy grows worse and worse as time goes on. We live in the last days and we know that our Lord prophesied that in our last days there would be few in the world that believe. Few things have been more destructive to the implementation of a well-rounded, biblically-grounded Christian worldview than an incoherent perspective on the end times. A classic, though inadvertent, illustration of this is available in a 1977 interview with the evangelist Billy Graham. Question. If you had to live your life over again, what would you do differently? Answer. One of my greatest regrets is that I have not studied enough. I wish I had studied more and preached less. Donald Barhouse said that if he knew the Lord was coming in three years, he would spend two of them studying and one preaching. I'm trying to make it up. A similar problem is admitted by Tim LaHaye. Many Christians are committed to the approaching end of the age with all of its horror, according to their dispensational view. Most knowledgeable Christians are looking for the second coming of Christ and the tribulation period that he predicted would come before the end of the age. Because present world conditions are so similar to those the Bible prophesies for the last days, they conclude that a takeover of our culture by the forces of evil is inevitable, so they do nothing to resist it. Such an outlook is not conductive to the promotion of a full-orbed Christian worldview. A book review in Christianity Today further illustrates this mindset. There we read that Myers calls us not to change the world, but to understand it. The review also notes that the author Myers writes, 
If we cannot expect our culture to be a holy enterprise, we can at least try to avoid participating in its profanities. It is not unusual for the defenders and extenders of pessimistic eschatologies to speak of suffering and sorrow as the lot of Christians throughout the Christian history, with no hope of a let-up. Writes Omlinless Professor Richard Gaffin of Westminster Theological Seminary, Over the interadvental period in its entirety from beginning to end, a fundamental aspect of the Church's existence is to be suffering with Christ. Nothing the, no- the New Testament teaches is more basic to its identity than that. The normal situation for the community of Christ is not to be influential and prosperous, but poor and oppressed. The Church is called to suffer in this world. Such tolerance as Christians receive in the, in, on the part of the world is due to the fact that we live in the earlier rather than the later stage of history. Conclusion The study of eschatology is a worthy Christian endeavor. Its significance to the Christian worldview is evidence in the large role it plays in Scripture, which holds priority in the developing of a truly Christian worldview. It is also crucial to, de- to the development of a distinctively Christian philosophy of history, which is fundamental to the Christian understanding of the here and now. In addition, eschatology significantly impacts the Christian's cultural endeavors because it sets before the Christian the foreordained pattern of the future. If that pattern is one of pessimism, it will, lead, it will tend to discourage and thwart the Christian social enterprise. In this work, I will set forth a biblical eschatology that gives prominence to the gospel victory theme. The optimistic eschatological perspective from which I write is that of postmillennialism, a postmillennialism generated neither by contemporary Reagan-era optimism nor by Kierkegaardian leap of faith, but by a careful, exegetical, and theological study of eschatological data of Scripture. I believe with Roger Campbell that the church today needs this kind of vision, the vision of her reigning Lord with all the resources of heaven and earth under his command for the help and protection of his church and the inner gathering of his elect. In the foreword to that book, O.T. Alice wrote, My own studies in this and related fields have convinced me that the most serious error in much of the current prophetic teaching of today is the claim that the future of Christendom is to be read not in terms of revival and victory, but of growing impotence and apostasy, and that the only hope of the world is that the Lord will, by his visible coming and reign, complete the task which he has so plainly entrusted to the church. This claim is pessimistic and defeatist. I hold it to be unscriptural. The language of the Great Commission is world-embracing, and it has back and it has back of it the authority and power of the one who said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations. The duty of the church to, to address herself to the achieving of this task in anticipation of the Lord's coming and not to expect him to call her away to glory before her task is accomplished.